You're listening to Raw with me, Tom Latcham. It's part three of three of this interview with Tony Coleman, who is uh, also known as London Electricity, co-founder of Hospital Records. Uh, we talked in the past about some of the changes that have been made to Hospital Records, and we're going to probably see the fruits of those uh, as we move out of the pandemic. But I'm interested to explore um, what it's been like running a label in a pandemic. I, I mean, before we do that, what is it? like running a label in in 2021 and, and how does that compare to when you started which is of course on the on the, on the cusp of the digital age the internet etc i mean it's it's radically different and thankfully i mean hospitals grown so slowly I, across 25 years um but the decisions that that we made in terms of our position um with regards to formats like digital and streaming and and so forth and then choosing the right staff to actually facilitate that because if you're now nowadays obviously the, the majority of what makes a label run comes from streaming so and you can't to do that really well you can't really rely on a distributor because you're just giving away a lot of income. And the way to do it is to make personal relationships with the, the major players, and that takes time and expertise. So we've got we've got staff who specialize in every kind of department of what it takes to be a successful label. How many staff have well, you got now? I was going to say, that's why we've got 25. Wow staff i think it's 25 mm. i think we're recruiting two more this year um so it does you know you if you want to be the best then you have to you have to have the best working for you obviously you can't be the best so um and that all, all of that is an investment well i mean <laughs> talking about investments we we moved into a really lovely shiny new office um two and a half years ago and just inside for lockdown <laughs> no, no one's using it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and actually like you know as as things open up if they do um we, we're giving ourselves the choice you know you can work from home you can come in and we're sort of advocate advocating a um combination really mm -hmm. you know because not commuting is brilliant obviously for but also you do lose um a whole host of things including uh, you know asking someone who's more experienced than you how you do a certain thing or yeah uh, you know just that discussion is a lot easier than a zoom call which might take however long and you've got to put it in your diary you know you can just catch it's up really, with someone and go, yeah but it's quite interesting because when everyone was in the office we've got a big open plan office um and uh if you didn't know it was a record label you might think it was a call center because everyone's got headphones on and they're, they're doing their work and instead of taking their headphones off and asking someone else to take their headphones off to talk to them they'll just message them on slack <laughs> even though they might be next to them you know it's like so it's not it's that all the same different. anyway yeah <laughs> it's, it's actually not that different um and the only time that everyone really 
gets their heads together is breaks like lunch break or Table team tennis. meeting which might happen every two weeks you know um so people are isolated anyway i mean i fought against that so many as it's you know younger staff came in and they were just in their headphones and like i even i remember like putting a a rule down that you're not allowed to wear headphones in the office. It's, it's crazy because everyone's working on music, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, in an open plan office, if you do get a member of staff who is gobby and likes to completely dominate the room with their voice, then that that can be very disruptive, you know. So is so, that part of the interview process where you're like, right, not not gobby? Well, yeah, you do try and sense that. <laughs> I bet you do. Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, how, how, where, where does most of your money come from now? So, back in the day, 1997, if you yeah. sold X thousand records, you made quite a significant amount of money. But yeah, now, yeah. if you, you you probably don't. When we now we've you know we've moved to largely digital but you know limited vinyl which is on the increase admittedly but still not to anything like the levels it was where, where does where does a, a 2021 independent uh record label make their money uh okay so like i said um a little while ago you have to work all the angles and you need to know what the angles are before you can work them so the angles the angles are obviously streaming um that is the big earner that's spotify has taken over from itunes which pre-streaming was the, was the big player for downloads um sort of parallel with the beginning of of itunes there was cds were huge incredibly profitable they cost nothing to make you could sell them for some labels sold them for 15 quid it was ridiculous uh now the angles are, I mean, we still do do physical products, although it's getting a lot harder with Brexit because all the manufacturing places are in Germany or France or Czech Republic. Um, so there's almost nothing in the UK anymore. So that's an issue. Uh, that is probably going to slowly kill the resurgence of vinyl, which is a real shame. Um, so our uh, so Chris from uh, Night Force, Chris Owl, <clears throat> another big independent uh, rave label who you'll, of course, know, he said the same thing. And he put out a, a, a big message saying, we just can't get vinyl. And it's taken so long to do it. Why don't there's only like 10 plants or something left? In the, you know, but now there is this resurgence. Why don't you independent labels get together and fund a new one? Well, we did. We got quite close to doing that about 10 years ago. Um and I sort of formed a, a coalition with Metropolis, who are a very high-end studio and um, mastering house, and also with our distributor SRD at the time. And we kind of sat down and thought, because we knew the pressing plants were going, and there was one in Halsden that was just going up for sale. And we've got very close to buying it. What, what made us decide not to do it is basically it's not our core business and it would, it would just sap 
it would have sapped our time and we would have taken our eyes off the ball of the label and inevitably put our eyes on the ball of manufacturing records you know mm. so it was the right decision not to do it and there, there's always this utopian idea that you suggested that oh yeah all the labels can get together and it doesn't <laughs> work like when does that ever work yeah quite <laughs> it, does not, it does not work because everyone everyone's got a different agenda everyone's got different amounts of funding everyone's got different amounts of work their heads put into it doesn't work is there a community in drum and bass huge huge but they just don't get they just don't agree <laughs> no, no, no. It's, there's a community that is very supportive and very um enabling and uh full of love and i think part of the reason that we we have grown drum and bass that's what i mean when i say we part of the reason we have grown and developed is that we also understand that actually working together is not always the best thing you know and by working together i mean actually running a, a business together you know a venture together we'd rather kind of have third party people to help do that is that because money is the ruination of relationships if you're not tight already if you're not part of yeah. business, business? It, it really can be you know people fall out over money mm. um and it's it's not worth ruining a, a beautiful relationship for the sake of money. No, indeed. In terms of the last year for you, I mean, it's been an interesting year for you, to put it mildly, and that's the pandemic, of course. You just had a hip-hop, which we uh, we mentioned at the uh, the start of the first episode. Um, how bad was it before? Did it impact upon your performances? Or my hip? Hmm. Um, I mean, to, to have a hip-hop, it must have been pretty serious. No, I mean, it got really bad um, after the summer last year, 2020. Uh, I mean, I've always had sort of lower back problems, but um, no, this was quite quick, you know. And the timing was good, really, because there were no gigs. So I wasn't missing out on any gigs. Do you think it came on because of lockdown, because you weren't active and your body, your mind goes, uh-oh, you're not doing anything now, so this is the time for, for you to tell that you're hit. Yeah, I mean, possibly. It's like... Yeah, maybe my body was going, um, all right, so you're not doing any gigs. You're nearly 60. I'm going to fall apart on you. <laughs> you know, yeah, quite possibly. Um, it's like that thing when you're, when you're touring frantically and when you stop, that's when you get ill. That's when you get a cold or the flu or, mm -hmm. you know, it's like your immune system holds together while you need it to, you know, while you're in fight mode. And then when you relax, it kind of all goes, yeah. And, and, and has that uh, fueled your decision to decide to step back slightly and take a more limited role in the uh, record label? I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. My decision isn't to, it's not, I'm not looking at what I'm, what I don't want to do anymore. I'm looking at what I do want to do. So, um, I think, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a good point in my life to really, to think about my priorities and what's exciting for me. And, you know, to be honest, hospital records is such a well-oiled machine. Mm. Um, it doesn't need me. 
right. anymore. How did that um, make you feel? Proud or sad? Or both? Both. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, I haven't, you know, my, my, my kids are still young teenagers, but I can only imagine it's very similar to when you've put, you've dedicated your life to bringing up your kids and they, they just leave and they go do their own thing. It must feel a bit like that, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a difficult decision to make, but now I've made it. Yeah. Every cell in my body says it's the right decision. It's funny, isn't it? It's, um, the the <clears throat> the sort of unanswered questions when you haven't when you when you're thinking about something but you're not quite sure, and they all just goes round and round in your mind, and then actually making that decision is so freeing, isn't it? Mm. It is. It is freeing and letting go, you know, um, letting go of your baby um, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's liberating. It's sad. It's exciting. I mean, the main, the main thing is that for the last sort of five or six years, really, of running and building hospital, I haven't been challenged and excited by it. It got too easy. Right. And I don't like that. Well, it's dangerous, isn't it, for anyone running a business? If, if it's if it's easy, then you risk failing because you're just doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, and it did feel like that. The, the annual release schedule was frantic. So it was like being on a, for me, it was like being on a, and it, like the best hamster wheel in the world, you know, like really amazing hamster wheel that, that I'd created and helped create um but realizing i'm on this hamster wheel and it's very stressful because the release schedule is insane um stressful but not challenging is not a good combination no right stressful and exciting and challenging is great i'm all for that and i love that and i loved that about hospital for so many years um, so what and so what what has how have you found the last year in terms of running the label performing or not performing rather and missing the buzz of that and uh, you know how has the label done what you said there were some surprises and some revelations how have you weathered this particularly scary storm because i suppose with 25 employees mm. you are in a much riskier position than some of the smaller indies were yeah and what was i mean we kind of saw i think like anyone with a brain uh, we saw lockdown coming way before the government did. And as soon as, basically as soon as like New Zealand and Taiwan and places like that, they locked down instantly. Um, you just say the word pandemic and they pull up the drawbridge, you know. And that's exactly what we should have done. It was, it was blatantly obvious. We're an island. <laughs> we could have done that, you know. Um, so we... We closed our office a month before uh, the government told people to close their offices. We sent our staff home. We made sure that everyone was connected via Zoom. Um, and we kind of like bedded in for that. The one thing that we nearly didn't keep it open, but we just thought no one's going to be ordering from the web shop, are they? So we should close it. And then uh, Dave, who runs the web shop he lives really close and he said look i can just cycle over from my flat and 
there's only going to be a few orders, but I'll, I'll just do them in a couple of hours, you know. So we were like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And the first, the first day of actual national lockdown, um, Dave went in and he started phoning everybody going, I need help. I need help. There's more orders than we've ever had before. And like, and literally the shot went ballistic. Right. Absolutely went ballistic. And we're, we're talking like a 200% increase in orders and turnover on the web shop, which was a total shock. Right. Really nice shock, but yeah. a total shock. And I mean, things that we would never expect to fly off the shelves in a lockdown, T-shirts, you know, which we always thought, people bought to wear to gigs but no <laughs> there were no gigs and they were every new design every new repress we put in just flew you know and we started doing some quite extravagant clothing that we've never done before and it flew and this is all in lockdown it was amazing so and the other thing that we didn't at all see coming was that spotify would go through the roof Looking back on it, of course it would, because everyone was at home listening to it. Yeah, you know, for listening to it for a long time, not just like a dipping in and in and out. And so those those two things completely compensated and more for the complete lack of events. And it turned out against all our expectations that last year was actually one of our most profitable years ever. Why? And so people has been positive for the hospital. people were buying vinyl. They were buying, you name it, physical stuff. They were just buying it, and and they were streaming shit. And like you know, practicing DJs were buying off Beatport and like or buying from our own site. And yeah, it was we we actually going into lockdown. We thought, well, it's been a good run, but this is probably going to be it. You know. We're not going to survive this. It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. So uh, we've talked a bit about you know during the pandemic and and uh, and what it was like. Uh, you, you you referenced about how you spotted the government and we're not getting this right and you and you 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 got ahead of them. Um, you've also criticised them as being the most autocratic. Uh, government that we've ever had it's been a crazy time for politics really over the past six or so years and, and you do a weekly podcast which uh, our listener ben's a runner uh, loves he says you're a legend by the way but it is unashamedly political and you admit that yourself mm. um where do you get your political side i've always had it always um and honestly i think like if you are a creative person if you work in the arts if you work in music, um, you are dealing with people all the time. And the whole notion of equality is so important. You know, it's a, it's a bedrock of what we do. It has to be. Because when, when you work in music, you're, you're um, what's the word I'm looking for? You fly over all of the normal day-to-day -day 
kind of day-to-day niggles and annoyances and sort of like the petty kind of human baggage that uh that basically runs the country and runs politics and is virulent in politics and in the media and so forth but if you're actually if you're all about pure music then you're talking about people you're talking about people people's lives the way people think the way people get on um and you go straight to the core of uh yeah like i say equality it's all about that in every sense of the word and that doesn't fit with um a capitalist conservative right-wing environment where equality is a direct threat to to a right-wing state of mind you know it really is it's a direct threat well i i am um, i i sometimes get criticism on this podcast if i talk about uh, you know the tories in a critical manner i mean they have been in government almost you know apart from 15 years uh even a bit less yeah. than that I think, over the last 40 or so they've been in power so i mean it, you know criticizing the tories isn't necessarily about criticizing the tory party it's often about criticizing the government but still i do get grief from it i had someone unsubscribe from the podcast just fine. yesterday uh well you know you say it's fine but you know i think that everyone has a right to their own beliefs that's absolutely fine i agree with that yeah, that's equality mm-hmm. right but um the thing is art never exists in isolation it cannot it can't do and certainly the rave scene hasn't and can't do either so so it's impossible to do a retrospective look at the 90s rave scene and beyond without yeah looking at it through through a political sphere but while i've just told you there's a commercial risk to me being too political and i think that people can probably infer what i am from 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 from, from the podcast but i don't mm. need to explicitly say it but is there not uh, an inherent risk commercially for you of being so politically vocal i actually think the reverse um i think there's a massive risk if you try and uh people please with everything that you do uh, because it's, it's not about people pleasing, isn't it? Just about allowing people to have their own beliefs and not being critical for it. And uh, li- listen, right? So, I've never, I've never, I've never disallowed anyone from having their own beliefs. You know, there's but you massive- did say, can I, can I, can I read a quote from you? And you might know. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna prove me wrong. Go on. You once said, "I don't give a fuck if anyone who voted for Brexit buys our shit or not." Right. Now, if I said that, given the number of people who listen to our podcast outside the big cities, I genuinely think that that would impact upon numbers. Because, of course, 52% of this country did vote in that way. Now, I would say, how many Brexit voters do you think buy hospital record stuff anyway? So, you know, you might say that's a relatively safe uh, position to, to, to stand. But doesn't being, doesn't that sort of, doesn't it make a rod for your own back? You know, you have to be seen to be practicing what you preach. And, and I ask that because it's quite clear from all you say, Tony, particularly that quote about Brexit. Uh, but I've seen you tweeting lots of anti-racist sentiment. You are clearly uh, an anti-racist. You talk about equality. You're obviously left-leaning, internationalist, liberal, with a social conscience, who's influenced by music and elements of jazz and all soul and funk. And, of course, that originated in the black community. And, and uh, you know, you are not, as, as far as I can see, 
a racist person. So how on earth did you in hospital find yourself in the position of facing a storm of allegations of racism in the past year? Um, at the time of Black Lives Matter, um, there was rightfully and understandably um, a massive uh, backlash against anyone who was perceived to be um, let's let's just tell you what it is anyone who's perceived to be white but making money out of black art forms if you like um, now original original dongle music it wasn't completely black but it, it was probably a majority of people making it and DJing it were black. Um, the way drum and bass has evolved has so certainly like, to my ears and to my way of thinking, um, I've only ever heard the tunes and I've only ever heard the music um, before I signed it. And I would never... Yeah, it never really crossed my mind. Maybe it should have done because what I maybe looking back, I think what I'd like to have done now, if I could go back, would be more intelligent about racial balance within music and all like our little corner of music, drum and bass, and proactively. Um, restore the balance i think in terms of race and um gender as well so we we are doing that now and not only not only with our artists but with our staff as well i think um the, the timing last summer when it all kicked off online the reason we got it in the neck i think more than anyone else is probably because we're the biggest label in drum and bass. So we're a big target that you can't miss. And at that time, unfortunately, we, we didn't have any black staff. Um, we weren't all white, uh, but we didn't have any actual kind of like black staff. And whereas in the past we've we have, you know, so people could actually say, look, a hospital, there's no there's no black people working there. And that was true. And it was like unfortunate timing. Very, very difficult for me and Chris. Who we've grown up. We've grown up in black music and. um my first kind of proper job before I started my first label um, was I ran a youth training scheme in Hackney and built a recording studio with my trainees. Um, and I was at that point, I was working exclusively with black kids um, who are my trainees. I was, I was in my kind of mid early twenties actually. 
and it, it was it was brilliant i loved it and it was again i i didn't see color and i know that that's been that's been seen to be a racist thing in itself to not see color um but i didn't and i just saw people and music and that that was it you know so same with chris as well and it was very difficult to be to be called out and accused of being racist and um what was particularly hard for an organization our size was knowing how to respond to it and how to message about it or not message about it and that that was that was really difficult so just to um just to bring people up today if they if they haven't got any clue about this if they if this is the first time that they've uh, come across you or whatever and they uh, they don't know about this storm because it was an online storm a brief yeah. summary would be uh, that you faced allegations of racism or at best a lack of diversity on your rosters and staff mm -hmm. over the years. And it reached ahead last summer when uh, Chris in perspective released several videos uh, full of allegations about a lack of diversity, not signing or even knowing about certain black artists. And even he claimed uh, quasi racist language being used by employees at hospital. You released a statement apologizing. Uh, you then launched a series of initiatives mm. aimed at improving diversity, including a mentoring scheme for black artists. Uh, and unfortunately, even that slightly backfired in a ham fisted way when someone said that they were Asian and asked if they could also join the scheme because they were, uh, you know, BAME, minority ethnic. Uh, and someone said no, because they're not black. When, when this all kicked off, and when he posted those videos, um, I actually had a I had a quick look at the the big drum and bass labels, if you like, which at that time were us, Ram, um, Critical, Vision, Liquidity, uh, UKF slash AEI slash Drum and Bass Arena, and I had a look at all their rosters. And our roster was far more diverse than any of those labels. I was so devastated and stressed and hurt by this. I rang Cleveland Watkiss. Now, Cle Cleveland Watkiss has always, over the years, been um, more than vocal about uh, black rights. You know, before it was fashionable to be vocal about black rights he was always and he's he's had an mbe he's huge figure within not only drum and bass but jazz um dance ballet uh, you name it Cle cleveland's cleveland's in there and i called him because i know that he's got um a wealth of experience in this area and he spent an hour on the phone talking to me and really explaining to me the concept of institutional racism which when he broke it down made complete sense to me um structural structural racism institutional racism and he he said look you need to read these books because you will really learn so much and he said look tony i know you're not a racist um the depth of your learning you need to learn more um 
which I duly did. Did Cleveland Watkins' um, assessment of what may or may not be structurally racist resonate with what hospital setup is? Inevitably, yeah. I mean, like, look, looked at without any historical context, that was how it looked. And I could see that. Um, and what you have to do, you have to, you have to, you can't just respond with words. You know, I was, I was very tempted, as you can imagine, to get on camera and make a response video because I was furious. You know, I was really, really angry. Luckily, the other directors said, um, that's not going to be a great idea, Tony, if you do that. So I didn't because I am outspoken and I would, I would have thrown petrol on the fire <laughs> if I'd done that, you know, uh, it might've made me feel better for about 12 hours and then I would have regretted it. I know that. So I had to keep silent. Otherwise I just kind of like, make things worse i know that um, did you at any point feel that the that this had the potential to become an existential crisis to the label i think everyone on the label did we all did we were all all in kind of spiritual agony for quite some time and there is no blame attached to anybody in in that situation there isn't anyone to blame we knew that we we couldn't blame anybody else and we couldn't blame ourselves because we hadn't done anything wrong we'd always uh we'd always just signed music you know um and i, d I do take issue with you when you say you've you've employed and signed people who are like you it's not true at all it isn't. Yeah, I mean, it was a wake-up call, really. It was like, wow, we've been totally unaware um, that, yeah, we're, we're middle-class white, me and Chris. We started the label. We're still running the label. It's grown into this behemoth, this juggernaut. Um, and it's a beautiful label. It's a beautiful concept. It's all about um going the extra mile to show love to people um but it just so happens that even though we we are signing and promoting black artists at this point in summer last year there was no black people on the staff team and that was not by design that was just the way it goes sometimes you know people join people leave people get headhunted we've had a lot of black staff over the years who've got headhunted by big companies, by the majors and so forth. And it's never been, we've never had a kind of, okay, we've got to have, if we've got 20 staff, we've got to have like six from this ethnic background and three from this ethnic background. Um, you can't construct a company like that. It doesn't work. You know, you, you you can't do that. Um, but yeah, it was like we, we looked at it and realized, yeah, okay, I can I can totally understand why people 
at first glance think this and it was all about knee-jerk reactions then online you know and i think a lot of people piled in um to hate on us maybe just because we're we're the biggest in the game and if they're not part of our journey then they feel left out or resentful or whatever i mean i'm you know i've always been a rebel i've always rebelled against uh the status quo and when you become the biggest label you become the status quo so people are going to rebel against you that's human nature you know that really is doesn't matter what you do if you're the biggest a lot of people hate you for being the biggest but but, so, but but people had a problem with you not because you're the biggest but because you had elements of institutional racism which, which you yourself have just admitted i think um i i don't think we we were institutionally racist because like i said over the years we've we've never ever thought about color we've always employed people on merit and a lot of people have come through from various different backgrounds um genders sexuality it's never been a, a thing for us um but the one thing we didn't do was to really understand that we could have deliberately proactively uh redressed the balance um and i think like nearly every company really aside from um i think as aside from maybe companies are on the front line of health and social care and so forth who since the 80s have had positive discrimination policies um it never occurred to us in music to do that because we don't discriminate and it didn't yeah it just didn't ever occur to us to do that you know um so if that's institutionally racist then we were institutionally racist um by not positively discriminating so you mentioned that you've had a little look at some of the other labels and and they were not particularly diverse either um they their rockers were a lot less diverse than ours, put it that way. And right. in that shitstorm, I had phone calls with uh, people who run neuro labels, and they were just terrified. Because, as you probably know, like neuro is a form of drum and bass that is, it really emanates from, um, from Holland, from the Netherlands, and it is 100% white. There aren't any black neuro producers at all um so it's got no elements of soul or reggae or funk or anything like that it's pure kind of like white techno drum and bass if you like um and they were bricking it you know so they're not racist either that that's the music they make and um, no so 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 the lead on from that is that uh clearly there is a lack of diversity on other major drum and bass labels, right? DJ Flight, she claims the drum and bass scene has been whitewashed. We interviewed Mampy Swift. We asked him about it. He said himself he'd seen elements of it and it was very painful. Mm. Do you disagree with their sentiment? No. 
No, I don't. I mean, I think I can't speak for other labels, but certainly from my point of view and hospital's point of view, we have never, um, obviously we've never set out to whitewash anything. We've just done our best um, to make music and to facilitate music. We never had a plan. We never had a business plan. Uh, never in a million years would I imagine that we'd reach this size. You know, it's complete. It's still a complete surprise to me, to be honest, that the hospital has got as big as it's got. And it's got as big as it's got because we've shown a lot of love to our artists and our fans and we've just tried to work as as well as we can and i am who i am i can't i can't pretend i'm not who i am i'm a white middle class man and so is chris uh so we can't change that you know that that is who we are if um you accept uh flight and mampy's assessment about the whitewashing of the scene or uh, in part at least how has drum and bass come to that point where you're having to admit that is the case i mean i'm i'm you you understand the context of my view here um the problem with the term whitewashing is it um what it says is that someone's deliberately uh painted over a multicolored wall with a big paintbrush and a big pot of white paint that's what whitewashing is that isn't certainly not what we've done and that's not what i've done so i do take issue with that a year on what tangible impact has this all had in your view for me personally um i did a lot of studying last year and um reading a lot a lot of books from akala uh to biographies of miles davis malcolm x um and and in between uh so i feel i feel a lot more educated now um i also feel like there's it's it's like any any struggle to get things right in life it doesn't end and and it sh it kind of can't end it's almost like the struggle to struggle to be a good person you you strive to be a good person you will never actually be a 100% good person so there isn't a utopian balance to be achieved in any area of life but if you educate yourself and if, if you've got a good intention and at the end of the day if your philosophy is love for people then you have to make sure that as many different people and types of people do feel your love you know and i will 
I, I will stand together with anybody who's being discriminated against and I always have uh, so whilst it was very very painful to be on the receiving end of accusations of racism I knew myself that I wasn't a racist but I also found out pretty quickly that I didn't have my eye on the ball and I didn't quite realize or I didn't realize uh, that we because we weren't thinking about color we were thinking about music and that that's not it's not an excuse because there's no blame attached to me or to hospital or to anyone else who's made accusations um i guess thinking about race wasn't on my radar because i've always known that i'm not racist whereas now thinking about race is very very important and everything, everything changed with george floyd of course I'm, I'm very glad it changed i'm very very glad that it kicked off last year and believe it or not i'm very glad that i was accused of being a racist because it's made me reassess myself and made me rethink and made me read study and learn and i'm glad that my beautiful label hospital records was accused of being racist because what's coming out of that is we are we are now being a better version of ourselves um so i'm i'm glad it all happened i'm very very glad for uh for black people that it happened because my god it needed to happen it really did and it still needs to happen i mean it's not resolved and it's hopefully going to get a bit more resolved but with our government and their their views on immigration um you only have to look at the handling of, of the Windrush scandal i mean it's bleak in this country you know and it's bleak in a lot of countries but all any of us can do is to just look at our tiny little piece of the jigsaw and get it right what does that involve? It's thinking, you know, it's, it's knowing, it's thinking, it's learning. Um, and certainly with hospital over the last sort of nine or 10 months, um, we have been actively recruiting uh, a much more diverse workforce. And also actively seeking out drum and bass producers of from different backgrounds and different genders um and that's that's a really really good thing to be part of what about on your management team because the, the, i work for a a sports agency and one of our uh, it's a, it, it's um a British Asian run sports agency and one of their uh, goals is to increase not increase underrepresentation improve underrepresentation in 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 the sporting world and one of the things that we talk about all the time is mm. role models so you know we work we you know we 
we, we're very new, but we've had some small wins uh, mm. so far. And one of them has been getting a young British Asian footballer back into the game uh, who had not been playing football and had been selling cars at the age of 23. And, wow. and he's now back playing. And, we got, and, and, and just a couple of weekends ago, he played at Wembley in his return mm. game. You know, so, and that, we, you know, we had off the back of doing a bit of PR around that, we've had messages from people going, hey, guys, uh, we're British Asian uh, football, you know, we want to play football, but we feel that the system isn't really set up for us. There's no role models. Seeing, uh, you know, seeing this guy, Maz, uh, do that has really inspired us. So, but it requires, uh, and I speak to people in this in this world, you know, um, represents uh, some of the other people I speak to, managers. In terms of representation, he's like, I've spoken to people and they say it won't change until the makeup of the football clubs change. So, and, and that means the board, and, and you won't get the coaches in unless the board's, are also have uh, representation on them. So is that something you're trying to do as well? Because it's all very well, you know, staffing your uh, your office with X number of different types of people if no one mm. actually gets to see that happen. What people do uh, take inspiration on is who's behind the decks or who's knocking out that record that they really love and being, you know, being in those sort of middle distance photos. You know, that's what people look for. So is that not only in terms of there, but in terms of the management, the driving force of your label, is that somewhere you're trying to improve representation too? Yeah. I mean, when, when I took the decision to step back from the day to day running of hospital, uh, I did give advice to the board and I said, look, we really need, um, We need representation on the board of directors, and that's my advice. And so, is it, being, is it going to be followed? I think. I think when the right person comes along, because when when you appoint a director, you cannot appoint a director for um, unless you're a huge company. You see, if you're massive, if you're, a, you know, a multinational corporation, well, you can afford, you can afford to appoint directors of every creed. You know, when you're a company like us, you can't afford to do that because you have to, you have to be a viable business. Otherwise, all your artists get dropped and we go out of business. So. A director has to be someone who is right for the company in so many different ways. So our our task and the board of directors' task, as I as I see it, and as I've said um, in board meetings, is to uh, to have our radar on for a person of color who will take the company forward with the board and it's a long-term goal and it's not something you can fix in the short term mm. it really isn't you know all of the all of the directors i mean when hospital started it was me trading ads i was a sole trader and that was the business um and when chris left london electricity um I turned it into a limited company and me and Chris were directors and uh, 
we gradually it's such a slow process to to appoint directors um it's the two other directors on the board have been appointed because they've worked with us for years and proved themselves to be director material and um it can only be a long-term uh, strategy it can't be short-term well, that's what you're doing as a label, um, but you're very well connected to all the other labels. Is there a, a feeling of desire for change among other labels? And are they also actively uh, taking steps to do it? Or are they just hoping that they don't that, you know, that they're not in the firing line next? Because unfortunately, you've taken the flack for something that you say exists across the scene. It exists across drum and bass and it exists across the music business. And it exists across the industry. Um, but now that you know, now that we've seen the wood for the trees, and we realise that this is a problem that you can't just sit back and hope is going to get better. If you've got any kind of influence, you have to do what you can to make it better, and that takes time. You know, it takes time in business. Um, you can't change things overnight. So, and people won't see the change until you actually make it. But it, you know, some of those moves are very long and very drawn out. What other labels are doing, you'd have to ask them. And it's certainly not something that I would ever ask another label. Um, Why not? Isn't it important that you, you know, on some things you can't agree, money, Right, I get it. I get why money comes in between you. But the desire to promote people uh, from all walks of life surely should be a unifying something, a unifying factor among all of you that you can agree on. Yeah, and I, I cannot, or anyone from hospital, we can't, we can't preach that unless we've we've shown that we're an example of that. And as I said, it takes a long time to to change the makeup of um, management and board of directors. Now we've done it. We've done it with gender. I mean, like a few years ago, it was all men working in hospital and managing, and now all the managers are women. Um, so. But again, I, you know, and I, it's, take, what, it's taken a bit too far from the point is that that was sort of how Jungle was in the 90s. And let's face it, Jungle in the 90s was incredibly sexist. There was there was one serious, D, you know, DJ and producer, DJ rap. There were a few others who were slightly smaller, but there was only mm. one. And everyone goes, oh, but it wasn't sexist because they all used to run the, you know, they used to run things. You're like, well, no, but that is sexist. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know. Sexism has been rife and still is rife in huge areas of the music business, um, but it's not it's not rife in hospital records. No, but there is. I notice unless your website isn't up to date, there is only one female artist pictured out of thirty seven. One male artist. One female artist pictured. Oh, one, out of one female artist. Yeah. Um, We've now that's not to say that you're not improving things upon the scene. I know you say it takes longer, but mm. I mean, there are loads of great female producers out there, they do, they are, there are. So, are you, are you... 
Why no. is there only one out of 37 currently on your website? Is it your website's out of date or is it that you haven't signed them yet? Yeah, we haven't signed them yet. I mean, we've been putting a lot of energy into um, into workshops uh, for for women in drum and bass, and they've been great workshops mm. so that we can discover talent, you know, and we are discovering a lot of talent. Um, we're releasing a lot of tracks by female producers on our compilations, and that is traditionally that's a way we've always got to know artists before we sign them right. is by working with them on compilation projects so and see how they really how they are in the process of working together because we collaborate with our artists we don't tell them what to do but we like i said earlier we help them to be the best version of themselves and that means we can't sign anyone who isn't prepared to at least consider um positive criticism and believe me, there's a lot of artists who, who won't consider it. I believe you. <laughs> their ego's in the way. So, and it takes time to kind of understand that relationship with an artist. You know, you have to go through the process with a few tunes for compilations or remix. or you know, And then you get an idea of what the artist is like. And then you can say, right, I do want to work with this person. Or I really can't because they're a nightmare. And that applies to male producers any producer everyone everybody yeah. every human yeah so so it takes time you can't just suddenly go fuck we need to sign six female artists okay right who's out there we're gonna right. splash the cash and then we'll look better mm. you can't do that because you're doing everyone a disservice yeah not okay, doing well, it for the right reasons uh, last question on, on on this particular thing, but and thank you for being so generous with your uh, with with tackling this. I think uh, you know it, I know it was a very painful time for you and for a mm. lot of people that are involved in this. Um, and it remains a, 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 pain, a difficult and painful topic for a lot of people. Mm. So so thanks for for, for talking about it. Um, sort of last question, unless one comes out of this one. But all the changes that you're attempting to make or endeavouring to make, and you believe that other labels hopefully are too. Mm. Fast forward five years, because you know it takes a long time. You've said that, maybe 10 years. What would you like to see happen to the drum and bass scene when we talk about its makeup? And I'm talking actually about ravers, because certainly at your events, and I've seen loads of videos of all your events. I've not been to hospitality yet, but I'd like to. Um, they are largely white people, and and, and mm. I don't quite know why that is the case. Uh, and, and again, it might go back to role models. You know, It might go back to seeing that as role models. I don't know. But, but in five years' time, what would be your ultimate desire and what or actually what's realistic well those, those are two different things um as always in life uh in five years time i ideally would like to see um a black person on the board of directors of hospital um and because people who come to people who invest their time and their money in a lifestyle brand because we we are kind of like a sort of tiny little lifestyle brand within drum and bass people who invest in that um they invest in it because they feel it represents them and if we don't have anyone at the helm of hospital records of color then black people aren't going to feel represented by us and they're not going to want to come to our shows and you're absolutely right 
um, I would really like to see um, the people who come to our gigs, I'd like to see them represent uh, a cross-section of British society. I really would. That is my ideal vision. Um, realistically, it takes longer to even mo to move towards that, um, to visibly move towards that, because people don't really know what changes you're making under the hood in terms of the machinery. And you make changes, and then if you do it right, they they bear fruit gradually. So how it's actually going to be in five years, I don't know. You know, I really don't. But I know that we've got a lot of positive work to do, and we are doing it um, behind the scenes. So, um, and I'm hoping in five years' time, people can look back and go, "Yeah, I can actually see." that hospital have gone on this journey and it's a very positive thing well it's a noble aim and uh, as i say again thank you for for being so open and honest uh, about that whole situation up no, next I, uh, as, go on, you want to say something but more go on no, no no i appreciate the opportunity to actually talk honestly about it and it's easier to talk about it now than mm. at the time when it was mm -hmm. so inflammatory so imagine. um yeah thank you for that no, you're welcome. Uh, and uh, up next, as we wrap up this uh, three-part interview, we are going to uh, take a little look about what is to, uh, what's coming in the future for Hospital, even if it is without the best A&R man in the world. <laughs> oi, oi, go check out the new digital six-track EP, A New Hype, from the 14-year-old DJ Seema. Yes, 14 on full the cool recordings. I mean, sounds more ravey in Essex than Warrington, though, doesn't it? We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoy the rest of the app. On Friday the 
20th of August 2021. A new event, Return to Source, celebrating 90s rave, hardcore, jungle, happy hardcore, drum and bass, and techno. Touch us down at Suki 10C in Digbeth, Birmingham. We have Fusion South Coast legend DJ Druid, Quest and Fiber Optics DJ Fallout, the uprising northern legend that is DJ Paulo, and London Town's final trickster playing his first happy hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets are priced at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Radio. So we're coming towards the end of this three-part interview with London Electricity, a.k.a. Tony Coleman, a.k.a. the co-founder of Hospital, who has revealed that he is going to take a a step back from the day-to-day running, perhaps, and focus more on his creativity. But he'll still, I'm sure, be very influential at Hospital. And um, Tony, what what is the future for Hospital uh, in the next year as we come out of covid and then also beyond? Do do, Do you have plans to grow further? How big can you grow? Well, we've never planned to grow, so we don't plan to grow. Um, growth happens, um, and it, it's a very organic process. So we may we may shrink a bit, we may stay the same size, we may grow. I don't know, but it's certainly not an aim of anybody um, in in hospital records. So, in terms of in terms of music, um, we have got some really exciting. Uh, things on the back burner or front burner, whatever. Um, something I, I can't actually tell you about because we haven't um, publicised them yet. So uh, obviously we've got a lot of rich albums that are being written at the moment um, by our artists. Um, we've got a new album from Dex coming up. We've got a new album from Inja coming up. Um, I've got a remix album of Building Better Worlds, my last album, which is obviously called Rebuilding Better Worlds. Um, and we've got a series of compilations um, called Future Symptoms, which are a home for unknown artists or emerging artists and there's definitely an emphasis um on those for us to get to know uh female producers um black producers of drum and bass and people from various different backgrounds and it's certainly within our kind of sector of music if you like i mean people refer to us as a liquid label and i understand why even though I've never been that comfortable with that term, but there there aren't there aren't many um, liquid art, artists producers who are black at all. So we have to look, and we are looking very very deep and hard at that. And we want people to get in touch with us if they are making, um, let's say, soulful kind of uh, harmonic drum and bass, for want of a better word. Well, there you go. Uh, if anyone is listening to this, the the uh, the direct line into Tony Coleman, you know, the best A and R in uh, not the world. We'll we'll, we'll say Lambs, cool. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. I, I, one of the best A and R men in rave has said, "Get in touch." Uh, he wants to hear from you. That he wants to hear from you in different sort of 
genres and feels. I've got I've got a suggestion. I'll I'll tell you one afterwards. We, we've run them on track. We've run one on track Tuesday. Uh, it's fantastic. I'll I'll flag it to you afterwards. It's about a pressure. It's about a roar. You've always at hospital decided to stay independent. Why? Um, it probably goes back to my very early experience in the music business. Um, when I had my band, Is It? And we made the track called Stories. And we, we self-released it. And it did really, really well. Um, and then uh, Paul Oakenfold was setting up Perfecto which was funded and basically a division of London Records, um, which got taken over by Universal. Uh, he signed it and remixed it and released it. And to this day, and this was 1988, and to this day, we have never been accounted for it by a major label. And it charted that experience alone was enough to make me think i cannot trust major labels because they're run by accountants and shareholders and the last thing of all that they're interested in is the the well-being of their artists mm. the only person i can trust is me and that at that time that i knew Obviously, there are people now I've met along the way who I would definitely trust with my career. But at that time, the only person I can trust is me. And that kicked off my journey of being independent and fiercely independent, proudly independent, never, never wanting to dance with the lizards of this scene. You know, <laughs> I mean, we've had, don't get me wrong, as you can imagine, we've had quite a lot of sort of takeover slash buyout interest yeah have you ever turned down big cash in a buyout yeah oh yeah how much how much have you turned not, down i can't say i can't tell you it'd be Tens wrong of millions to, it'd be wrong to tell you how much but what i what i do know is and i've seen it happen you know i mean you mentioned andy c very early on andy and scott um sold ram to bmg a few years ago and BMG let all of their staff, apart from one, Jim, the label manager, go. So they just let them all go. Mm. Um, BMG wanted catalogue. And at that time, they came to see us as well. They wanted our catalogue. They were hoovering up catalogue for streaming, basically. Treating independent labels with their rich history just like a library you know treating them like a music library mm. and i couldn't i couldn't do that to my artists all my staff no way that's what that's exactly what would happen you know they'd sack all the staff most well, of your artists get pissed off but if someone came to you with 100 million quid uh there's 25 staff everyone's gonna no do one's... quite well everyone's gonna do quite well out of that and they wouldn't no mind. One's... <laughs> yeah Thank you. No one's ever going to offer a hundred million pounds for <laughs> an independent small drum and bass label. That's not going to happen. You know, people, 
people aren't stupid when they're flashing their cash around and they they want to know that they've got a really good deal because they're backed by venture capitalists and mm -hmm. vcs want to triple their money over five years mm. so they're not going to offer unrealistic amounts of money it's just not going to happen and whatever they can offer isn't going to be enough put it that way okay um and what about you as an artist i know that you're going to be going down a more creative route and leaving the running of the label slightly mm. behind um but as you get into your 60s what are the next 10 or 15 years look like i've absolutely no idea and i like having no idea it's brilliant Zimmercore. yeah <laughs> <laughs> zimmer step yeah 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 my mum's pretty good at that um no i've got i've got no idea and i like i say it's really nice to to not know you know i know that um i'm extremely creative and i'm loving being in the studio um and as an artist believe it or not i've just signed my first ever record deal with hospital records <laughs> Well, congratulations i'm surprised you weren't able to do it earlier frankly well i've never had one i never didn't didn't want to have one you know what why yes. but um yeah the company yeah, if you can't give yourself a record deal when you run the flipping thing then when can you well exactly yeah um so uh I'm... are you gonna ever will you ever retire no i mean that the whole notion of retire is weird it's like what do you do when you've retired? Do you does that go mean make music? So I mean, you can't make music anymore. No, but I mean, that's maybe in a way, this is sort of like a slowdown in your life into something where you're going and pursuing things where with a less business focus, so you can create more. And that's what you often do. When, that's sort of what my parents have sort of done. You know, they wind down their work and they and they do a few little bits here and there, but things that they really enjoy yeah uh it's not going to mean that i don't make music so no. i'm never going to retire as an artist i can't you know i that i'll retire when i die well i mean we all we all do <laughs> yeah but i have to be i have to be making music you know it's too, it's too precious not to so and what, do you, what do you what do you see as the future for the drum and bass scene what will that look like post pandemic well, in terms of the events, nobody knows. You know, no nobody knows how how the pandemic and post-pandemic would affect licensing of events. Because to do big events, whether it's indoors or outdoors, you have to be able to secure licenses. And it's that's the kind of not so glamorous part of doing it all. And I don't none of us know how that's going to be um in a post-pandemic world because people might attach very very difficult conditions to having a license such as testing all twelve thousand people who come in making them wait for the results of the test um or paying for extremely expensive sniffer dogs um because there are sniffer dogs who can sniff covid um if there's those kind of requirements it it will make a lot of events um impossible to put on so uh and events overseas like our beloved beach party which we've had to cancel last year and this year um 
we obviously we're sincerely hoping it can go ahead next year because uh, it is an amazing event. Um, we don't know next year if there's going to be more spikes in mainland Europe, if there's more spikes in the UK. We don't know. So we don't know what the quarantine situation is going to be. Um, we, we hope it's we hope it's going to be workable, but it is nothing is going to be the same. I know that. And what will that then do in your mind for the music? Because we've had people on, uh, Darren Styles is a good example. He was like, there's no way that I can play what I was playing when they, when the pandemic started to what's to, to when I, to when we go out again and we go free, but I don't know whether anything's going to work because I haven't played it on the, no one's played it on a dance floor. So I'm creating music that I've got no idea that people will want to dance to or like. So, I mean, does, does, a, does, does the changing shape of the event, uh industry means that the music will be different um it's an interesting point and i've i've thought about that and i th actually think that from a ravers perspective because they've been denied the opportunity to properly rave to the music they love they're probably going to want a bit of a catch up musically because if you come at them with two hours of new music that no one's ever heard on the dance floor um they'll be disappointed mm, interesting yeah they've they've been locked in unable to rave they're desperate to rave they're going to want to hear the big tunes that were big in 2019 because it will kind of refresh them restart them restart them on their journey make them feel really good about where things were and where things are now and then you develop from then that's interesting uh, an interesting way of uh, i mean if you, of, if you put your put on an old school event basically <laughs> no you know old school, i mean like you know a sort of like two years ago school yeah <laughs> but i mean you know and within that it's always a good opportunity to to build your set and slip in brand new tunes and see if they work and if they work great they're they're good they work in that context if 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 they hold the floor if they hold everyone's attention um then that's that's the mark of a, a good future chain so you have to be intelligent with the way you put your set together you know okay. um and to sum up this interview looking back over your uh, impressive 25 year career in the the drum and bass scene what's been your favourite year of that 25 oh, years and why? Mikey. Um, in terms of, in terms of, uh, I don't know, my favourite year, I suppose 2003. That was a really good year. I released, Billion Dollar Gravy. It was the year that we we smashed it by joining iTunes a long time before anyone else in our scene. Um, did my first live incarnation of London Electricity, and the label was really showing signs of this is going to go well. That was an amazing year, and it was still only a handful of us doing it, working off gut instinct and not having to worry about any rules whatsoever nice. you know no rules no regulations because yeah. we're, we're off everybody's radar 
you know. And you were building and you was just a small group of you. And uh, what's your, been your proudest moment? There's been a lot. I mean, proudest moment was playing Song in the Key of Knife the very first time in 1997 at uh, Club Blue in Tokyo. Played it off that tape, uh, which was the tape we used to master onto. And that completely went off. That was an incredibly proud moment. Um, very proud standing on the stage at Heaven on our first ever event there. That was an immensely proud moment. I mean, I haven't got proud often because I've always thought if you get proud of your achievements too much, then it stops you from trying harder. Mm. And I've always been one to never look back and only look forward. So I probably haven't been as proud as I should have been at various occasions. I mean, um, Hospitality in the Park 2016, the first one, that was that was remarkable. It was amazing. I was like overcome with pride before it even opened. I was just driving around in a buggy looking at the stages and mm. the kind of the way we just set up that that area was unbelievable for me. Um, playing at the beach, really proud, really proud when um, my youngest son, who was nine at the time, he, he recorded the lead vocal for one of the tracks on my last album time to think and um it was in this room with Inja. Inja Inja wrote it for Stanley and uh Stanley is the Secretary General and it and he performed it second take nailed it it was amazing I was so proud of him and uh I was proud of the chairman who's my oldest son like at Glastonbury quite a few years ago I think he was six and I was in a the last week you do loads of different gigs, you know, you do your kind of big one, and you do lots of little ones. And I was, I was in a little one um, and I didn't have an MC. So he just said, Dada, can I MC for you? <laughs> so I said, I said, yeah, no. just, <laughs> just, just run it by me first. What you are going to do? And um, so it wasn't going to be like really annoying, you know? Uh, and he was like playing with his little brother outside playing with loom bands that was a craze at the, at the time these little elastic bands um and every now and then he'd pop in and he'd get on the chair and he'd say he'd say dada i want to say make some noise okay you could say so i gave him the mic and he did that and everyone went Aah! you know and uh, and he disappeared and then he, he came back and he said dada I'm, I'm gonna say this if i say glasto you say brie glaston like that i said yeah cool response. do it and he did it and it was it was amazing it was awesome nice. that, was it. <laughs> that was all he did you know that was, was wicked I was, I was very proud of him has he got yeah. a future as an mc no no, no. <laughs> his, his little brother is more likely to do that i'd say okay yeah. um and 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 what what do you hope when all is said and done will be your legacy <laughs> um If you're a producer and an artist and performer and everything, obviously what you create is is a legacy. I, mean, I haven't really thought about it, um, but I've, I've made a lot of albums and I'm going to make a lot more. Um, that's a legacy. But 
if you also um, make a difference in the industry and in, in the business and a positive difference, which hospital records most definitely is and will continue to be, then that is a legacy too. And that's something that it's actually really nice for me to be able to say that because when I was in the thick of it all, um, just running on adrenaline, always looking to the future, always worrying about the future, never looking back and taking stock, I could never see that there's a huge legacy there. And there is. And it's not it's not my legacy. It's the legacy of everybody who's worked at hospital. And it's also a legacy of all of the artists at hospital. And most of all, it's the, it's a legacy of the fans and the people who've come on the journey with us and trusted us to come on the journey. It's, it's your legacy too. Nice. Well, that seems like an opportune moment to end this interview. Uh, I'd like to thank you again for your time and your generosity of spirit and for talking about some difficult topics uh, yeah. which I don't think you've, you've talked about publicly before. So thank you very much for all of that. And uh, we wish you the very best in your semi-retirement. <laughs> it's, trust me, it's not going to be a retirement. I'm not doing the gardening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Get them slippers yeah. on and get into the lounge core. <laughs> Cheers. I'm not, I'm not giving up the podcast. Don't worry. You've still got oh, a conversation. Very good. You'll be able to tune into that. Top man, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Raw. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard off how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now in Team 5, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of Raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash UK pods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Raw, raw, raw.